And now, do you like Prince movies? drinkers, all you non-Coke drinkers, all, all you people who drink soda, but all you weirdos who actively prefer Pepsi products, you know, I know you're out there saying things like, you know, hey, how about, why don't we go to Taco Bell? They got those Pepsi products there. They're delicious. I'm thinking a lot about uh, sugar water this week the meaning of sugar water uh my name is alex papadimus sitting across the table from me in this moment of relative silence dave Schilling. hello i am dave Schilling of grantland.com good to see you where are my coke boys at (laughs) r.i.p chinks drugs (laughs) it was a big weekend it was for the coke slingers the various kinds of coke slingers well a sad weekend it was a rough weekend i mean yes r.i.p chinks drugs we lost chinks we lost madmen uh i'm devastated and i don't know how you're feeling right now but i'm gonna pop a coke uh on air first time anyone's ever done this let's see how it sounds was pretty satisfying. Uh, the distinctive crinkle of the Coca-Cola aluminum bottle. Yeah, this is a weird. Yeah, it's it's neither. A, it's both a can and a bottle. It's a it's a it's a coddle. I want to say that we're uh, not. Uh, we've not been compensated in any way for this uh, product placement. And I was actually contem- I was thinking about you know uh, just not even saying what kind of soda it was. We were just enjoying a sort of a delicious brown soda, and we were not going to specify <laughs> it because we're not getting you know. There's no extra money coming our way. I can taste the syrup. It's so good. Mm. That's pretty good. It's so good. I see that you're pinky out there on your Coke. I like it. Yeah, no, I don't want it to. I don't want the uh, delicious, uh, you know, uh, Coke products to warm too much. I was going to bring you a Mexico Coke, which is obviously the best Coke. Of course, that's you know that was I was not able to uh, stop it. Mm, Don uh, Draper would not approve of the extra sugar. In, no, in Mexican Coke. Speaking of Don Draper, <laughs> genius apparently. One of the greatest ad men of all time created one of the greatest ads of all time, the Coca-Cola, I'd like to buy the world a Coke ad. How did you feel about the ending, that they pulled that thing out of thin air? I, man, I loved, first of all, I loved the idea of ending it with a punchline, which is such a, was such a great thing to do that I don't think anybody's really done like that, you know, that, that not ending with some sort of, you know, whatever it was, something, you know, the non-ambiguous, because I don't think it's ambiguous, First of all, I think I like I, I, we can talk about people wanting to see ambiguity in it that's not there. But I love the idea of landing on that. I was just the minute I saw it, I was like, yep, perfect. Like, exactly. I know people called it. I didn't call it at all. Um, but I love that, like, the you know, ultimately, like, the thing that would happen is like the, you know, the, the great epiphany. Like, it would, the epiphany isn't finished until you turn the epiphany into an ad. You know, it's weird, though, that that did. I mean, that, that our sort of the, that last look was also a product placement. I have not read anything about how involved anybody was or wasn't in you know that decision. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's very odd to me that, you know, this scene, which 
in my reading was kind of ominous, and a lot of people have read it as such, that Don Draper has taken this pure spiritual uh, awakening that he had and turned it into an ad campaign. That Coca-Cola would say, sure, go ahead and use you know our classic commercial for this this kind of cynical aim. And then for McCann Erickson to be like, yes, you can have this fictional character take responsibility for this thing that we made, that you can uh, portray our company as being sexist and horrible. They even tweeted about it. They were like, thanks, Don. You know, right, we, you finally had a good idea. That yeah, was the, yeah, exactly. finally came up with something. Uh, now, now back to our regularly scheduled sexual harassment, which apparently, you know. Yeah, we still... we, ap- we approve of what they're doing on this show. This is what McCann Erickson was like. It's kind of, it's it's strange to me, but, you know, in this day and age where you want any sort of social media uh, attention that you can get, sure. of course they're going to glom onto it. Of course Coke is going to be like, yeah, sure, we support this. Yeah, Coke is they're they're the journey of this finale. They they're just they suddenly get the they get the free look for nothing, you know. Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. I I I I had something else to do yesterday. I was working on something and I did not absorb all the takes the way that you normally do. And so I've kind of caught the takes sort of like sort of haphazardly. And I feel like the one the one thing that did bug me, the one thing that I did, you know, that I sort of made me glad that I hadn't absorbed more of it was. You know, and people bringing up the question of, uh, I think it's fairly straightforward what happened. And I feel like now in the wake of The Sopranos, everyone wants to see complexities in these things that aren't necessarily there. Like, I think we were being told something pretty straightforward. You know, I mean, they were they are messing with the official history, obviously. Like, that's a real ad. There's a real person who created it. Uh, But there's, you know, beyond that, I think that, you know, there, there was a lot. It never felt like. You know, we were supposed to take anything else away from him except, like, he he did this. Yeah. But I, I appreciate the fact that they didn't give us that scene where Don Draper runs screaming through the hallways of McCann Erickson in a flop sweat, screaming, I've got the answer to Coke. <laughs> I figured out Coke, everybody. Uh, first of all, they think he was on real Coke. Um if he was sweating and which, such. Which has arrived in the Mad Men universe as of this episode. Yes, it's there. props to, to Joan for uh, taking her first bump and describing cocaine better than anyone ever has in the entirety of the world, saying, it's like I got really good news. Perfect. Yeah, yeah no, it's perfect. It's perfect. And you do wonder, you know, you do wonder what would have happened if he'd stayed with that guy. My theory was that he, uh, the Bruce, Bruce Greenwood's character, that he, he grows up to be James Woods in his casino. <laughs> That's a that's a very uh, astute observation. He's sweatier and meltier, and so he's he's like, yeah, no, this is totally safe. This cocaine, and then yeah, cut no, to you... him extorting Ace Rothstein, you know, over. He's just bleeding out of both nostrils. Uh, I think this this is the most fun part about this finale is saying what are these characters like today? What were they like in the eighties? Because you know they could have done the six feet under thing and shown us how they died and give us, you know, a very uh, detailed history of their lives, but they didn't do that. They just, this is the end. No. So you get to speculate. So what, what is Peggy going to do in the 80s? Well, that's the question. I mean, because she doesn't, she does not go into business with Joan, which would have been sort of, I think, a fan service step too far, right? Like they had to, they could do one or the other. They could either have her and Stan fall in love or they could have her and Joan go into business together. And there was, you know, I think both are kind of, 
things that people longed for that are also not exactly realistic for the either for the you know in the context of the show or for the time you know so it's like either you get that rom-com moment between the two of them or you get uh uh olsen holloway or olsen olsen harris yeah or harris olsen actually excuse me she had a lot of options for the name on that uh were you upset that they gave us this like romantic ending for Peggy because I know there were a lot of people who were kind of like, oh, this is the most uh, maudlin sort of decision they could make and like uh, romantic and, and and broad. I guess I, I I don't I don't ship as a rule, but I did I did ship the uh, you know uh, Peggy Stan thing, so I can't be too mad at it. It's a little I mean him running being out of breath and her still being on the phone is it's I mean it's pure pure rom-com like it is the corn syrup that they make coke from but like it was actually uh i it, it made me happy that that happened you know so i felt i felt fan serviced in that moment as much as anything else um yeah i don't know like what you know what does what does happen to her it's not i'm sad that the six feet under thing is the six feet under thing and now nobody can do it yeah you know, that you don't get to see that because one thing that I never really liked doing was predicting about this show and like where people would end up and how it would, you know, how they would end up. It was always I always liked that, you know, people would fall out and you just you wouldn't know necessarily what happened to them and maybe they would never come back. You know, and then maybe they just sort of you know, they would just drop out as they do in life, you know, in from some perspective. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, clearly Don goes on to just do great things with his enlightenment, like the greatest things he could possibly do. I mean, I thought a lot of that moment in – oh, there's a moment in – it's in the, it's in all the books, but it's, it's a lot is made of it in the movie, um, in Alex Gibney's Steve Jobs movie, where Jobs, as a young man, pre-Apple, decides that he's enlightened and goes to a, a Buddhist monk that he's been friendly with and sort of pulls this monk out of his uh, seclusion and makes him go sit with him and like at a bar. And I think like the monk has green tea and Steve has whatever Steve has. And he's like, I'm, in, I'm enlightened. What do I do now? And you see what he went and did, you know, the, like that spirituality sort of is, you know, that, that California Aislinn spirituality that we saw depicted in this episode of Mad Men, like, goes, like Silicon Valley is born entirely out of that in a yeah. lot of ways. That's, so. that's very true. You think about the the ways in which these sort of people that were living around the counterculture at the time, you know, children of the seventies and the sixties, go on to create this this culture that we have, this this very uh money centric, uh, advertising centric culture comes from that uh ability to monetize um, the things that are in our brains, the subconscious desires that we have for uh, nonconformity, for spiritual enlightenment, for just peace and, and comfort, you know. And I think Don taps into that, and a lot of people, like the Steve Jobses of the world, were able to tap into those subconscious desires and create what we have today. You know, there wouldn't be um, Apple without uh, the '60s, without. Uh, the sexual revolution without, you know, people getting thinking differently, thinking outside of thinking differently, like this stupid slogan. Right. See, yeah. we it's in my brain. No, we can't express ourselves without using these things yeah. in, in conversation. It's weird. Yeah, that, that, that stuff just comes out of your and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, like think differently. But yeah, like, no, it's weird. Yeah, no, that you don't get like, yeah, you don't get Steve Jobs without like Ram Dass, yeah. you know, and like that's the that's the crazy part. So, I mean, it's it's weird to think of, it, you know. I don't know. Does it does that ending seem like 
mean, it's certainly a mordant joke in some ways. Does that seem like a dark ending to you? Like it, it always seem like a did. bleak ending? Yes, because and and I was alluding to this before we went on the air that Don Draper takes his enlightenment and he perverts it into one of the greatest uh ad campaigns in the history of this country. Uh you know, that song topped the charts. That was a popular song in yep. addition to being a, a great ad. And if if everyone's reading of that ending is true, then he didn't learn anything. All he learned how to do was make a better ad. And I have to assume, talking about what happens to these characters, that Don Draper takes his, his uh, newfound level of success and goes back to being a jerk. Yeah. You know? I don't. Th- I don't think that he really learned anything except, you know, how to 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 better understand human relationships so that he can profit from it, and that's the downfall of Don Draper. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's certainly that's that's certainly one reading of that moment that he has with Leonard, right? Like you're supposed to think, or you're you you're you're allowed to think if you want to that like what's happening in that moment when he comes across the room and is hugging Leonard and crying and they're both having that man cry. That was the other thing. If we didn't do the moment of silence at the beginning, I just wanted to, I want to do a loop of just just the man cry, the man sob, just the like. The real, like, racked kind of, like, manly. <laughs> it was very affecting. I, yeah. I thought John Hamm's acting in the whole finale, the whole last seven episodes was fantastic. Um, you know, it worked on me. And I think uh, John Draper did have an epiphany of some sort. Yeah. But, you know, one of the basest drives that someone like Don Draper has is to succeed. You know, success is important to him. Not more important than, uh, you know, understanding yourself, obviously, because he ran away from McCann Erickson and, you know, went to California. Uh, so he had some sort of spiritual drive, but he also has this drive for glory and fame and power. Uh, he wouldn't be Don Draper if he didn't have all of those needs. And those needs obviously weren't met when he had his spiritual awakening, so he had to go back to work. I mean, maybe. I don't, I, I don't know. It's funny. You know, there's more to life than work, as a great <laughs> That's man That's what allegedly. Mm, we'll see about that. And it, it's, it's weird because as much as it does seem – it seems bleak in a way that is in keeping with the show and what the show had to say about advertising. But at the same time, the, what the show had to say about advertising I don't think was as simple as like advertising is garbage and rots your soul. Yeah. You know, I think it actually because it did depict people working on it and it depicted it as, you know, the work itself as somehow as laudable. And as I, you know, I mean, I don't know if creative expression is exactly the way to describe how they, you know, what they showed about it, because obviously you're working for a client and you're just trying to please them and you're trying to sell soda ultimately. But there was something about when you saw Don working and writing like it was there was a, you know, it it was coming from Matthew Weiner. There was a writer's celebration of writing and of the work and of, you know, landing that thing. And even though this Coke commercial sort of cloying and terrible in a lot of ways. It's still, you know, it is still a creative act. And he's somehow like there is I, I did I did feel on some level like he is, you know, he has reconciled these sides of his personality and they've all come together. Uh, you know, I just did the prayer hands emoji um, as uh, in, in, in found expression in a, in a commercial, which is almost like that's you know, it's sort of perfect. Like it, it's more perfect than. Oh, like he went off and he wrote a novel about the advertising business and really gave it to them. And that was the, you know, that's his triumph. Like that's not a, that would be a, you know, that would be a hollow triumph, I think, 
that would make a lot of people happy, but like would not ultimately be you know true to what this show was. I think so, also you know you have to think about the fact that Don Draper knows who he is and he understands himself after this is all over. And Peggy and Stan have this conversation in the final episode where Peggy tells Stan, "I'm gonna, I'm thinking about going into business with Joan, and I'm gonna write screenplays for uh, corporate." Films. Like industrial films. Industrial films, yes. And Stan's like, that's not even what you do. That is not who you are. And Peggy needs Stan to tell her that she is an advertiser, that she that is what she does. And I think Don knows that intrinsically about himself, and that's why he goes back to work. So you can almost say that it's it's good that he goes back because that's all he's good at. If he wrote a novel, you would think, well, Don's not a novelist. He wrote a movie. Like Don's not a screenwriter, right? All the theories where it's like, oh, and then he goes off and writes, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or something <laughs> right. like, and, you know, and that's his. He wrote Star Wars. That would be really fun. <laughs> if we're gonna look, if we're gonna take it away from, I believe the guy's name is Billy Davis. He was an African American man who wrote the Coke commercial that was, or he is credited with being the, you know, the force behind this. If we're gonna take that away from him. Why can we not just take Star Wars away from George Lucas? Well. We did, and it looks like it might have worked out very well. I guess we. I mean, he gave, you know he sold it, but it's you know it's he still, did profit quite a bit. He did do okay from yeah. it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so yeah, I think that you know we can we can talk. My question for you, the question that I had for you was, do you think that we put too much emphasis, and we've just spent the entire beginning of this segment and most of the, you know the bulk of this segment talking about it, so the answer is obviously yes. But do you think that we spend we put too much emphasis on endings? Of course, yes, in absolutely. This context. I mean, I was thinking about it in terms of the Sopranos, right? That we that you know, and why the, one of the reasons I don't think he would go, Weiner would go for the ambiguous ending for an ending that was meant to be interpreted in different ways, and like did he or didn't he in any way, is that he worked on the last season of that show, and he worked on the later seasons of that show, and saw, and I think saw that whole work after the show ended get tied up in the court of public opinion for all this time where no one is really can think about the Sopranos because we're stuck on whether or not Tony died at the end, you know? So I think like that's, you know, anyway, I I think like, you know, and so we do, we put way too much on it. Like, you know, it has to, we talk too much about sticking landings. I blame the finale of mash for this whole thing. This is a stretch, but hear me out. Mash uh, had one of the highest rated TV shows of all time, episodes of all time with its finale. What was it like? Ninety million people watched the Mash finale. It's something. I don't, it's yeah. It's every. It's, it's the number that everything will be measured against. Yeah, it's it's the thing that that people remember as the first important finale of a show, and uh, that it, it it united the culture. Millions of people watched it, and it had all of this catharsis and pathos, and and it felt like. This is an ending as opposed to the last episode of I Love Lucy, which I don't know what that was. Right. Nobody knows how Happy Days ended. No. But like – Well, eventually all the characters disappeared, got old, and then there was like uh, – you know, who, who didn't they add somebody? Oh, to, well, yeah. They added Ted McGinley. Ted McGinley. One. That's Ted McGinley, the guy. It yes. was the first show to end because of Ted McGinley's Sitcom arrival. killer Ted McGinley. Fonzie grew a beard. Yeah. It was, it was, very, yeah. It was nonsense. They petered out as, instead of like going out with a bang. So MASH sets this high bar – for finales of television shows. And when the Seinfeld finale came along, it was measured against the MASH finale, which was 
measured next to the Cheers finale. And there are all of these shows, like this lineage of MASH to Cheers to Cosby Show to Seinfeld sitcoms, granted, but they were important. They had uh, some sort of significance to the culture. And then when we start to have these big prestige shows like The Sopranos and Six Feet Under, it becomes even more important because you're wrapping up this story that people have expected to have an exciting ending or to pay off all the things they've been waiting for uh, to be paid off because these are plot-driven shows and also heavily character-driven shows. There's lots of uh, things that you want to see wrapped up. You want to see what happens to Nate Fisher um, you know, because you've set up this incredible problem for him that he has to go back and work at his family funeral home. You want to know what happens to Tony Soprano. Will he die? Will he live? You want to know what happens at the end of Lost because there's this giant mystery that they've been teasing they will solve at some point. Uh, and also I think there's just like the fear of the Twin Peaks problem that you don't get a satisfying ending that it's going to be elliptical because it gets canceled or because the creator is difficult. So so there's just so much history of television now uh, that you can't have a finale that's just an episode of a show. It has too much meaning to the fans of the show, too much meaning to people like us who write about and talk about these things. Right, there's like, a whole industry yeah. that would be frustrated if it was just another day at the, you know... At- McCann. We created our own problem. And I'm terrified at what the finale of Girls will be like. Because we're going to be trying to find significance for the end of a show that has had no actual story to it. It's been the meandering lies of these people. We're going to get to season seven of Girls. Everybody's going to be like, well, do you think Jess is going to get off drugs? Like, I don't know. That's not the point. Just let it end. Let these things die. Yeah, I miss when things could die. When yeah. they could just when they could just peter out. Because the other thing is that like I really could have, and I've said this before, like I I could have dealt with another ten years of seventies Mad Men really easily. Yeah. I could have done I figured out actually what I wanted it to be. I could have done like the better call Saul for this is let's say that that time between uh, the last shot of him, uh, of Don giving away the Cadillac and waiting for the bus and arriving at Bonneville Salt Flats, we don't know how long that period of time was. I'm just saying this to Matthew Weiner, to AMC, to anybody who's out there. None of you are listening, but I'm saying it anyway. I'm saying, all right, it's like The Fugitive, the old Fugitive TV show. Just that every week Don comes to a different town makes love to a different beautiful woman who maybe tries to steal his wallet, maybe not. Uh, and, and then he turns into the Incredible Hulk. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. great. Yes, and he has to keep <laughs> his drinking under control because he, at any moment, can turn into the incredibly maudlin Hulk with one piece of hair. <laughs> a giant, yeah. purple, engorged Don Draper <laughs> rampaging through the desert is something I would watch on television. I'm just, look, we're just putting it out there. That's something that can happen. It's a simple suggestion. It can be done. It's it's happened before. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. We're going to talk about uh, the other important cultural event of the week with Mad in the title. Stay tuned. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to 
I really uh, didn't think about how bad of a sig that song would be for what we're about to talk about, for the movie we're about to talk about. I thought about it. It was, it was, maybe it's good. Maybe it's an ironic, you know, it's an ironic moment. And then, you know, you can imagine. Mad Max takes place in a world after we've all been bought a Coke and it drives us crazy. It rots our brain. <laughs> our teeth have all fallen out. Yep. It's a world, you know, I mean, I think uh, Don Draper would have it. It is a world where no one buys anyone a Coke, and this is what happens when you don't. This is what happens in a world ruled by Pepsi. This is the end of the days. This is the inevitable end result of that. I was waiting for after you find out that uh, Immortan Joe does not want people drinking water. That he's like, here, here, have a Pepsi. Drink this. This is good. We've got cases of it in the back. Or just like surge energy drink. Yeah, it would be some kind of a like balls energy drink that <laughs> yeah. he was selling. Like, exactly. you know, like drink. I love that. I love the thing. Like, do not get too habituated to water or <laughs> yeah. you'll become addicted to it. <laughs> and Morton Joe is always preventing the people from their self-care that they need to do. He does not give the people what they want to coin a phrase. No, but he's, I mean, he's actually trying to alienate them from it. He's warning them off of it. So like, don't, don't, don't drink too much of this delicious water. It's yeah. coming down. Uh, from the hill. Has some more breast milk. <laughs> How does the breast milk get in this, the tanker? Okay, And so what is the purpose of... There were all those those ladies I know where it comes from, yeah. <laughs> from a woman's breast. I know, well, I know where... The, I know the beginning <laughs> of that process. I'm saying... Do you like, want me to explain the birds and the bees to you right now? No, but they're traveling with breast milk on the war rig. <laughs> I know. When the war rig is fully outfitted for battle, there is a tank of breast milk is there <laughs> just in case. I mean, it, it makes sense... So this is a movie where a man washes the blood of the patriarchy <laughs> off of his face with breast milk. I'm still – I'm laughing because that movie was so great. It was so much fun to see something that bizarre on screen in a multiplex with action explosions and such. Oh, yeah. No, to, but to walk into a theater and see that and have it be you know, the the big movie of the weekend that everyone's talking about as opposed to some weird thing that, you know, like, that's that's from Norway or something like that. Yeah. You have to like, you know, convince people, no, it's the best action movie. Like, that's you know, whatever. It's, it is from, you know. This isn't Lars von Trier's Antichrist. You don't have to be like, well... Just give it a give it a chance. No, it's like this is going to be a lot of fun. You're gonna you're gonna love this movie. Yeah, it's a jo- it is a joyous joyous violent movie. Um, my I, I I think my favorite thing about it because I complain so much about this. I, my favorite thing about this movie is that there is no there's not even any explanation of the previous Mad Max movies, let alone within this one. Well, but where did a Morton Joe come from? And like, what's the, you know, like, what is the, how do you get to be an Imperator, like piloting a war rig and everything? I think there's, there's all, you know, this movie was created partly in conjunction with uh, one of the co-screenwriters who I think was, you know, just basically storyboarding it from the beginning was Brendan McCarthy, the comics artist. And it's, uh, there are going to be graphic novels, prequels and things, whatever. I like that there's no explanation. I like that Zach Barron from GQ wrote a great thing. Uh, his review of it talked about like how the, the key to the whole thing which I agree with, is that robot arm that Charlize Theron's character has and that you don't ever hear how she lost the arm or anything like that. And he was well, the thing he wrote was basically like in a Marvel movie, she would give a speech like, you know, like this is, well, I lost the arm in a blimp accident and that's why I've always hated blimps. And then it would end with her having to jump onto a blimp like to conquer her fear of blimps. Yeah, and like why, why does she hate a Morton Joe? I mean, besides the fact that he's a monster, but she obviously has a personal 
issue with him. Well, it's interesting too because like uh, there's I I need to see it again for this reason because there is a little there was a little bit like in basically I would watch these action sequences and be like blown back like the TDK guy and then you know try to write st- stuff down because I was reviewing it like in the in the, the moments where you pause but she basically I think part of why she hates Morton Joe is that she's she's the one who's had to go out and harvest his wives. Right. Like, isn't she involved in that in the wife stealing process? And that's why she decides to break with him and sort of go, you know, steal the uh, right. Isn't she? In the, she, has, she has some culpability in this. Yeah, she's she definitely said that she wanted to like atone for something. Yeah, she wanted like redemption. Mm-hmm. She does that's her but like you don't know exactly for what. Yeah. But I feel like somebody somebody made the contention uh, that I've seen you know more more than one person that she you know somehow this you know the fact that those wives are there she is not uh, innocent. Yeah. In that. I I I uh I feel like there's so much that you can read into it and to go back to Mad Men like that's why these finales now are more elliptical than just blatantly obvious. Because you want to be able to read into things. And it's nice to have a film, a big budget action film, that allows you to speculate. Like, I can't speculate about Avengers Age of Ultron. There's nothing. I know where Ultron came from. I know why he exists. I know everything about Tony Stark that I need to know for the rest of my life. Uh, and they just keep laying more backstory and more details onto these characters in a very ham-fisted kind of way. And you, yeah, and you know where it's going too because it's yes. all based on pre-existing stories. It's like yeah. we're never going to be, uh, you know, we, I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to get to that point, the Game of Thrones point where we, they, you know, we parts ways with, you know, they've parted ways now with George R. R. Martin's narrative, right? Like yeah. they're doing their own, they're off on their own. Uh, for better or for worse, like I don't know that that day is ever coming for the Marvel thing. So it's there's something just it, it, it's sad that there that this movie is great on its own merits, but one of the things that's really exciting about it is that feeling of I don't know where this story is going right. to go. Even though there's not, you know, the story is we go across the desert and then we go back. <laughs> yeah, I was always so uh, confused during that movie of like. What did we just watch the last hour and a half of a movie for if they just have to turn around? <laughs> it's it, like it's like your dad screaming, if you don't shut up, I'm going to turn this car around. We're going to go back home. We're not going to go to Disneyland. Well, that's what happened in this movie. Uh, so shut up. Be quiet. The moment, I, as, as a parent, the moment when you first do that, for real, when you actually say you're going to turn around and go home, like, and it's you're suddenly like, what have I become? It is the greatest. What have now. I become? You are like, yeah. I am everything. I'm not even. I'm also a cliche monster. I'm not even like a regular, you know, an ex- interesting monster with you know. Use it on your kids next time you say you're going to turn around. Say that there's a giant armada with uh, tanker trucks and uh, people with arrows and and guys on poles, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, just say, yeah, we got polecats, we got flamethrowers. He's got to deal with a guitar. If I have to turn this car around, we're going to have to, exactly, we're going to have to fight the Doof Warrior when we go back. (laughs) There's a wasteland in front of us. Oh, the Doof Warrior. Um, It's interesting, too, that this is, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out what's the way that these things these things connect you know what's the way that these things link up in the the larger sense of the culture and i feel like although it's more blatant as a plot point in mad max they're both about patriarchy kind of spinning away from the sun both mad men and mad max like obviously mad men ends with you know you see what happens like the fact that don draper probably went back to mccann erickson and found his job waiting for him is proof that like privilege does not you know like at least in 1970 was like still going strong like there was it was still there for everybody 
But there is something interesting going on in both of these where I think we're, you know, it's it's these depictions like coming from like white guys, you know, thinking about that. But like thinking about the decline of that and like what you're starting to see in Mad Men in very small ways, even though there's still the Pete Campbell's going to Pete Campbell. You know, they will continue flying Learjets and all that. But you're seeing those that those things being chipped away at a little bit by, you know, like that Roger Sterling knows he's kind of being put out to pasture yeah. and that there will be this is no longer a world ruled by. The Rod- solely by the Roger Sterlings of the world. There's uh, that line in Mad Max of who killed the world, and they're implying, like, dudes killed the world. This yeah. is, it's very uh, blatant what the point of that movie is, and it bothered a lot of people, as we've seen men's rights activists threatening to boycott this film and whatnot. Um, but when you watch Mad Men, you see you know, even more that proof that it's very possible that we as men did destroy the world uh as someone who is a minority you know i have some uh some room to complain about men uh white men but sure. this is a safe space this for is, that. is this a safe space for me to complain about white people <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's totally but you, you have to sit on the throne while you do it the game you, of it's not a video but we have a giant iron throne in the room that i think is for our game of thrones podcast or it could hope, just be well, for, one, well, yeah, one would hope, or for just for making pronouncements. It's for Jalen and Jacoby. Jacoby's got himself a throne. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I, think, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, there's a groundswell of interest in these stories about women overcoming um, patriarchy and misogyny and all of these things. And it's one of the, the major... Um, battlegrounds of the civil rights movement which by the way that did not end in the (laughs) 60s mad men is proof that it did not end because there were no black people in the final episode of that show um all of the the black secretaries dispersed they didn't go to mccann from what i could tell did anybody go to mccann no there was like because uh no there's not that I, not that I know of because you didn't see any of them, so I assume they would have you know they would have tried to make sure we saw that if there was yeah. some point. Yeah, no, it. It, it's it's that that does not end uh, in 1970, and and you know it's still uh, controversial to have a movie where a woman is the main character, an action movie. Yeah, which this almost is. You know, I mean, like Max kind of like somebody compared him to Hicks. <laughs> he is kind of Hicks like, you know, where he yeah. sort of he falls into he like the, the, he's the focus in the beginning, but but by the end it's like he's just kind of a you know trusty kind of helpmate. He's there to not necessarily empower um, the female lead, but that archetype is there to um, sort of lend credence to the thought that this character is important. It's sort of like in Star Trek: The Next Generation <laughs> to pull it out this idea out. Uh, in Star Trek The Next Generation, every time uh, the writers wanted to prove that a villain was someone to be reckoned with, they have them beat up Worf. <laughs> <laughs> Worf gets beat up by the Borg and by, like, a Cardassian guy and all this stuff. Uh, and Hicks and, and Max in these movies are almost there to be like, all right, this guy, you think this guy is cool? Wait till you see her and what she's going to do later on in this movie. Yeah. Right, that he can sort of, yeah, like he, he sort of, he shows you he's the canary that shows you the uh, you know the like what what we're actually up against. Yes, and then exactly. this person's going to take on you know with literally one hand behind her back, basically, or yeah, figuratively. Yeah, um, there's a little bit in Aliens where Hicks kind of militarizes 
Ripley, mm-hmm. like showing her how to use the gun and the 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 what is that the loader? The power loader. Power well, she loader. knew how to yes. drive the power loader, but he's yeah he showed her how to because she had done it before. But she was you know she came from that world. Oh yeah, there's the scene where she's like, I got this, and she gets in it and. Yeah. They're all impressed that she can use it. Yeah, yeah, but that's still. I mean, that, there's something about that too because that's a, there's a that is a that's that's James Cameron versus Ridley Scott. That's the you know movie one, Ripley versus movie two, right? Like in, in like in the first one, if you don't know that Sigourney Weaver ends up being the sort the you know, main character of the Alien franchise, like if you could somehow erase that information from your brain before watching Alien for the first time, you you think it's you know that it's going to end with like Tom Skerritt ruling. You know, beating yeah. up the alien or whatever it is, you know, like and then find like, you know, so she's sort of she's she's vulnerable and human in that. And then in the second one, like she has to sort of like butch up a little bit. And like, that's where that comes from. And like, you know, Furiosa obviously is like that, you know, starts at that point. Yeah. And, you know, in a movie called Mad Max, though, when you yeah. buy a ticket, if you've never seen any of them or even if you have, you go there assuming Max is going to save the day. And on some level, he does, but he also doesn't. He doesn't even kill the bad guy at the end. You know, this is a. It's it's strange to me that Tom Hardy gets top billing in this movie. Yeah. No. He, I mean. Yeah. I mean, it has to. I mean, he, I guess you have to because you can't. You know, you wouldn't be able to sell anything else. You know. But I, I I love that though. Yeah. I love that he sort of fades in. You know, and I love that he kind of he sort of falls back. And the, obviously, there is more Mad Max to come. And George Miller has said that. And there will be this. Is, you know, they will turn this into a trilogy and everything. But it almost feels like it could be a passing of the torch. Like it could be the last one. Like you could have, if he could have physically done the action scenes, it would have been interesting to see Gibson in that position mm-hmm. as an older guy. Oh, be great. Old, just unforgiven it. But I guess there are other reasons why he was not in this movie. It's it's yeah. There's, he's done a few things that you could say are questionable, uh, and he keeps getting new chances. I guess he's just Don like Draper. Don Draper, he gets to go back. <laughs> no, like, you're you're fine. Once he, you open that door and walk through, you can never be kicked out of that club. All he has to do is walk in with the idea for Lethal Weapon Five or whatever it is. And, I think they're on five now. Yeah, yeah. I believe they're on five. And they're like, you can have your job back. Here you go. It's, yeah, at some point, it's going to be trendy to to remake '80s action movies. Oh yeah, it's uh, it, it sort it, of almost is, but I mean, RoboCop and Total Recall and movies like that are more, I would say, science fiction, but like the cop genre. They'll get it right at some point. They'll yeah. figure out figure out how to do that. So we were gonna, uh, you know, this is obviously a fantastic movie, and I think you know most people <laughs> who were gonna see it have probably already rushed out to see it. Yeah. Um, I thought the way to sort of add value to this conversation a little bit. And also just because I was reading something that I was like, this this kind of feels like that in a way. Uh, we want to recommend some things. If you enjoyed Mad Max, obviously you should. There's three other Mad Max movies, two of which are pretty amazing. You know, a uh, third of which has Tina Turner, which is also amazing in its own way. Uh, but if you like this, if you like Fury Road, there's a, you know, and uh, want to just keep that uh, keep that buzz going. Um I am going to recommend because I was reading it this weekend and it's uh, outstanding. There is a uh, Jeff Darrow comic book called Shaolin Cowboy, and uh, it uh, shares a a desert setting and a kind of over the top approach to violence and kind of a you know balletic approach to violence. There's a lot of uh, there's some some bisecting at one point of uh, people that's very Damien Hurst inspired it sort of splits like right down the middle but the specific issue that made me think of fury road was a story where 
uh, all of Shaolin Cowboy's enemies uh, mass in the desert or the the uh, relatives, the friends and relatives and brothers and wives and sisters of all the people he's killed in his career as a uh, vigilante. You know, his name is Shaolin Cowboy. It makes sense. You know, he's like a kung fu movie protagonist. Uh, he wears kind of a Civil War, vet, uh, one of those shirts that buttons up on both sides on the front, you know. Uh, all of his enemies mass in the desert, and uh, they are led by a crab, an actual crab, like a stone crab that you would eat at a crab restaurant. And the crab tells his story, and uh, I'm not going to ruin what the crab's story is and why the crab is there and why the crab has learned ninjutsu to fight Shaolin Cowboy. But then Shaolin Cowboy fights a crab for, like, a whole issue. It's amazing. Um that is my recommendation. That is uh, – go out and go and seek that out. There's a collection uh, from uh, Burly Man, which is uh, Lana and uh, uh, the Wachowskis uh, comic book imprint. How many issues do I have to get through to get to the crab? Not many. Okay. Not many. And it goes, it goes fast. So there's one – there's like – I believe there's one collection that has the begin the crab stories on the early side. I'm just going to go to my local comic book shop and say, give me the crab. Just where's the crab? Where's the where's crab? The Shaolin Cowboy story with the crack crab. crack that crab ask, open. Ask for the crab. But ask for ask for it by name. I believe it's called Vengeance of King Crab or something. Like oh, that. I'm into this. I love uh, violence. Uh, man on on uh, crustacean violence. It's about time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I have a recommendation. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen a little movie called Dread before. Came out a couple of years ago in 3D, starring Carl Urban, Olivia Thirlby, based on the classic 2000 AD comic book Judge Dread. It is a hard R. It is set in the future. It has action. It has black comedy. It's like if Paul Verhoeven made an action movie today. Uh, it doesn't have the, the satirical elements of RoboCop, but it is, just like Mad Max, uh, a throwback to a time when you could show horrific acts of violence in films and not be made squeamish by it. Because there's violence in movies... Uh, and then there's ultraviolence in movies. And the idea of ultraviolence to me is that scene in RoboCop where the Ed 209 shoots the uh, the corporate guy in the boardroom and he just keeps shooting him. Like 700 him. times. Yeah, yeah it's, it becomes so absurd that it, 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 it morphs into comedy. And there's a lot of that in Dread. There's a lot of just well-choreographed, well-shot action and it's incredibly faithful to the comic book, and not enough people saw this movie in theaters. It's unfortunately not going to get a sequel from uh, what I can tell. Uh, the writer, Alex Garland, who went on to do Ex Machina, uh, has said in the press quite a bit that it's just not going to happen. But there is still a groundswell of, of cult forming around this movie. And I think it's worth your time if you love Mad Max to get into to dread the movie, the comic books. It's It's got that same sense of... Uh, manic energy and uh, the same sort of outlaw sense of humor that Mad Max has. It's a fantastic movie. So good. One of the also one of the few 3D movies I've ever seen, or in the in this last sort of run of 3D movies, this you know this wave of 3D movies that we're in, where it actually where you're you're like, oh, yeah, that's that that should have been in 3D. That's why that you know because there's a lot of just all the all the falling down shafts and you know looking down and you know the, you need that depth. Mad Max depth had the field. same thing of just being able to like see the ways in which the pool the pool dancer guys <laughs> go back and forth and and things flying at you, pieces of car and bullets and it it. it it's immersive. It's one of those movies that actually feels like you're transported to another place. And that's why I think people loved Avatar so much. 
I don't know why people loved Avatar, but I assume it's because it was so immersive in the 3D in this well uh, put together, well constructed world just made it more um, appealing. I don't know. Let's not talk about Avatar anymore. Yeah, it's a it's a sore subject for me because uh, I only recently found out that Pandora is not a place where you can live. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I'm taking that pretty hard. Still, I'm still not. I'm still not all the way over it. When are those? How many more Avatar movies? James Cameron keeps he keeps he's like, not making the the next one, but he keeps saying it's up to it's seven more films. He's the now. George R. R. Martin of cinema. Um, oh, sorry, I just thought about Game of Thrones last week. I got bummed out. Yeah, it's this giant. This giant Iron Throne is really like it's really doing wonders. It's for distracting. The, it's, it's yeah. It's not. Uh, it's not soothing. One more that. Mad Max thing I want to bring up before yeah. we move on is. Tom Hardy in that movie, perfectly fine, great Max, whatever. Um, his voice is something from another planet. He's yeah, it's not Australian necessary, but it's it's clearly it's that's it's what Australian sounds like to Tom Hardy. <laughs> I don't know what sounds like anything to Tom Hardy. Uh, it's just like a garbled mess all did the time. You, did you see the drop? No, I haven't seen the drop. You should watch the, if you're a fan of the Tom Hardy accents. You got to just watch the drop just for the just, just to hear him, just what he comes up with for that. There's a lot of it's a, it, it, like it's one of those things where it's in an accent sort of pieced together from different regionalisms that don't all sort of don't go together. Which is uh, but like he's he's the king of it. It's amazing because he's he's great, but he keeps getting cast in these roles where they're like, what do you what do you got? And he just comes out with like it's uh, it's sort of uh, Singapore meets <laughs> you know uh, whatever it is like. <laughs> I'm from I'm from Thailand, but my parents grew up in Scotland, and my favorite TV show was um, Bonanza. Bonanza, yeah. So I got a little Southern twang in there, um, but also he's he's looped. A lot of his dialogue was looped, and I don't know why. Yeah, you think you could go back and? Uh... It's very distracting. It's like somebody from a you know. There's a voice in the, in the distance that is talking to me, as opposed to someone in the movie. Is it that know. bad? Is his voice that disturbing and strange and uh, indecipherable that they have to loop his dialogue? Is that why he wears masks all the time now? That is interesting. That he's the great mask actor. He's really going for being the great mask actor of our time. You know, for the wearing some kind of sort of Cobra Commander face covering. <laughs> there was at a all time. Times. You know, the first movie I ever saw him in was Star Trek Nemesis. <laughs> this uh. is the second Star Trek reference today, guys. This is a record for a Grantland podcast. Uh, and he sounded normal in that movie. He just talked. But now it's this Baroque, like, garbled nonsense. Like, he's chewing on shattered glass and sucking on Werther's originals at the same time. Yeah, because there's an urbaneness to it as well. It's like, well, I'm going to do it. I'll see you at the thing. Oh. Urbane. I yeah. like what you did there's there, a, my friend. Yeah, there's an nice. urbane. It's <laughs> also urbane. Ur- oh, urbane. God, that's horrible. <laughs> that's horrible. It's your fault. for. You, I, I have, blame the pun on you. Have some more Coca-Cola for that. I'm going to, I'm going to take another sip of Coca-Cola, and we're going to uh, – we'll be right back. We're going to talk about one more thing. Um, the other night I saw a trailer for a movie that I would probably have gone to see. I'm never going to get to do it. It's not a movie. It looks like quite a movie, though. It looks like it could be quite a movie. Joseph Kahn will do, apparently they will, people will hire him to do anything except make another movie. 
Yeah. Anything at all. I think he probably said to Taylor Swift uh, for the Bad Blood video, like, all right, so it's been a long time since I directed a movie, but if you just let me do this as like a sizzle reel for all the action I can choreograph, then I'll just, I'll do it for you. I just really need a calling card to get back into the game. Right. This is what it looks like. I can film beautiful people and famous people doing cool things and that's that's all that's all it takes like he's just it's you know that it's it's sad but kind of awesome that that's how he goes about kind of that that's the thing like that, that's the you know joseph con will teach you guitar you know like he'll just sort of like put up he's like <laughs> he's these, robert these mckee the, yeah the screenwriting he's, guru he's like just let me in the game like it's really it's you know like he'll do anything he'll do the like he'll do the fake trailer for the power rangers reboot that isn't happening you know it's just he'll yeah. just kind of go out there with it it's very sad i mean uh, he did a good job with his video. I'm of two minds about it. On on the one hand, I thought it was stupid. <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, it's a good so hand to start on. Why are we just getting this uh, kung fu demonstration with these, you know, all of these uh, cameos and such? All of uh, Taylor Swift's friends showed up to do wire foo. Um, but on the other hand, it's of a piece with Mad Max and Mad Men and all the things you've been talking about today. That it is this female empowerment story, you know, it's not a story per se, but it is, uh, you know, imagery and iconography that empowers women. That doesn't include, you know, a man coming in and saving the day. It's it's women doing cool things and, and kicking ass and such. Um, so, I I kind of liked it for that because I'm a good liberal and I love women. But why 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 was there so much hype for this? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it. I think just it looks like a superhero movie, and we're just programmed to get excited about anything, that. Yeah, anything that kind of resembles that, we just, it just starts the hamster wheel going. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit. It, it, it's weird that like these are they, they feel, especially in the wake of Mad Max. I think this has the, the kind of it was the timing of this was weird because it was hitting at the same time as Fury Road, and so everybody was seeing that what that actually looks like when you take you know when you really do subvert the you know kind of sexist cliches of the action movie and this is more just like let's put you know let's just put a girl in that scenario you know and just sort of give her like you know just have her be kicking ass can we cut to uh, lena dunham smoking a cigar for no reason (laughs) (laughs) yes absolutely i will say i will say that i went one of the things as a person who is not a screenwriter but who often thinks like i should write a movie like i often think and i'm just gonna i'm going to explain this whole thing like the scenario i've had in my head you know that thing that is like you'll never write it because you've thought about it for too long and you'll never find a place to put it is some sort of superhero movie involving Lena Dunham, involving like that that being the reveal, like sort of like Lena Dunham in the Taylor Swift role, mm, basically yes. in the equivalent of the Taylor Swift role. Like I want to see her for some reason doing the wire foo. I don't think that it's really feasible necessarily, but you know stunt doubles like stunt doubles exist. I think Taylor probably had a couple in this in this video. I've got to ask the the ultimate Grantland question here though. Is Taylor Swift our next great action hero? Did you believe her doing all of those moves? Do you feel like it was credible? 
No, there were a couple of moments when I was like, "This looks like you know, th- this is this is this chair choreography." I don't, I, I, I see you looking at the chair before you're going to land on it. There's a few, it's, there's some, there's some soft, uh, soft hits. Like it's, it's weird, right? Because it's fight choreography, but it also looks a little like choreography, choreography. Yes. Like there's a little bit of you know, sort of like the, this is a Bob Fosse punching number rather than it's you like know. capoeira. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I think I want more. You know, I want a grittier. I need. I need to see Taylor in a sort of a grittier scenario where it's just you know. She does a barrel roll and then comes out of it and then applies her makeup. Yeah, <laughs> right. You're not supposed to. This is not. This is not Watchmen. Like you're supposed to. Like you're going to take away. Like, Taylor Swift would have been great in Watchmen. Taylor Swift would have been great as 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 Rorschach. I think actually, <laughs> like that's what the, the mask reveal. And it's Taylor Swift. It's yeah, gold, baby. Come on, let's do this. Taylor Swift and Lena Dunham uh, in a buddy comedy. You know, this we, is the time. Yeah, this is the this is the moment. It needs to, a a buddy action fight comedy. Maybe a running scared remake. The Gregory Hines <laughs> Midnight Run remake. One. Midnight Run. In ten years, we can remake Hot Pursuit. <laughs> we, we should remake. We, we failed miserably the first time, but give us Taylor Swift and Lena Dunham, and we got it taken care of. We should just remake it now. We should just start <laughs> remaking these movies faster. We should stop letting them. Be, letting we should be like, look. Well, we, it's obviously bombed. We still have all the sets and the wardrobe. Let's just do it. It should be like, listen, we ob- look. We thought Sofia Vergara and Reese Witherspoon was a home run. Uh, like, come on, right? Like, you you would have thought that too. We're just gonna do it again. We we screwed it up. All right, let me bring it back. Let me bring it back home and ask you if female action heroes, if this is a, a trend or if this is something that's going to really last. Because the last time I was on the show, we talked about uh, our black TV shows going to last. Right. Is and this a thing that will have uh, staying power and sustain itself through multiple decades? I mean, it's weird, right? Because this didn't. It it this movie made money, but it didn't make crazy money like it didn't make insane money so like that's you know we don't have that there's not that automatic thing where it's like oh this the like we're usually the math and it's like if this is the number you know this is a huge runaway hit movie so we're going to make five million more of these and we're going to go in that direction you know but yeah you, you wonder if that's where it's if if hollywood will make that computation and look at this and say like this is because it's a female-led action movie, or if they will, or if this looks on paper, if it looks like oh, this is a Tom Hardy movie directed by uh, older white guy George Miller, and like we'll just get more of that, you know. I have to say the latter is probably more likely. I yeah, have a cynical, I'm just sword. cynical. It's a boring answer. Yeah, um, I just you know I think that at some point there has to be that threshold that we pass, and it, we go through it with with uh, you know. Alien and and all of the uh, Tomb Raider when Tomb Raider came out everyone said it's finally the moment yeah and the moment just hasn't come yet well it's weird too because it's one of those things that there's a million examples of it working that for whatever reason people ignore it's like how people are like how are they ever going to do superheroes on TV and like Smallville is over here like oh hello like we did this you know like all that you know for that 10 years of smallville or whatever it was it's like we had you know there's been 50 resident evil movies like that are, seem to be pretty successful because they keep making them and some of them are kind of amazing actually you know like it's and and for, like we're not getting to that point where this like each time we're surprised yeah by this thing this this formula working well the supergirl trailer that everybody you know took a dump on yeah. when that came out uh that it was 
basically the Black Widow sketch from SNL. You know, it's you can have a superhero show where a woman beats people up, but she also has to, you know, work at a, a magazine or whatever and, like, be cute and trip over herself and just want a boy. Yeah. Um, Jem doesn't get to go through a hologram wall anymore. <laughs> I know. There's What's going on with the world? Yeah, just we're, just we're depowering all of the really cool. Like, there's yeah, Jem is supposed to be supernatural. It's supposed to be some kind of, Do you yeah. think Jem and the holograms is cool? I, do, I bet if I went back to it, it would not be cool in the slightest. And I would just look at it and be like, this looks like not even made in the good sweatshop animation. <laughs> you know, and so that's probably it. But I remember it being sort of like bright pink and like really like hard, bright colors and like weird kind of like Adam Ant makeup and, you know, like bow wow wow kind of stuff. And like I feel like it's just you just see this thing now that they've, they've made out of it. It's like how could you <laughs> – I don't know. How could you miss the greatness how could you, if you're going into the gem and the holograms room to bring things out, how are these the objects that you bring out and the other stuff is what you leave behind? I think it's it's really because there aren't enough women making decisions about what female-led films and TV shows are going to look like. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's you and me, uh, or more like you, people like you, that are making those decisions. And yeah. I will admit freely that I don't understand women at all. All you women listeners out there, I don't understand you because I'm not you and I can't tell you what you like. And there's a reason why young girls like Jim and the Holograms. And it probably had something to do with the science fiction elements of it. The giant supercomputer and, you know, the, 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 the sci-fi weirdness. And you take that out and it's just like every other movie. Um, girls like science fiction. Girls like Mad Max. Girls like Taylor Swift doing barrel rolls and putting you know, lipstick on her lips. After the fact, it's, these are things that are universal, but we don't we always have to to undercut them with what we think girls like. Right. And we have to put something in there for the you know, for the dudes. And eventually that ends up taking over the whole thing. I don't know. I've seen enough. I'm glad that we did not have to go back and see how some guy became Mad Max again. It's like that we're not always on the sort of it's not always the guy's journey. Yeah. He doesn't know? really have a journey other than getting that mask off. And no, maybe f- uh, like feeling a little bit better about uh the his kids and you know, his wife getting killed in the first one yeah somewhat somewhat it always helps to blow up a war rig <laughs> it does it makes you feel better it's cathartic <laughs> to do it uh i will say one last thing about this that in the future peggy olsen should be the head of sony pictures that's what she's going to grow up to be. Imperator Olsen yes. of Sony Pictures. Yes. She's going to be the one that's going to greenlight the Black Widow movie one day. She will make that happen. And yes, not the Black Widow rom-com. But no, the, the real one. The real hard George hard R George Miller. This is a good idea. Black George Widow Miller movie. Black Widow movie. There you go. Start the rumor. <laughs> Making it. Yeah, exactly. It starts here. That's where all the real Hollywood rumors start. <laughs> Dave, as the, as the guest this week, I gave you Jam of the Week. God bless you for selection privileges for this uh, transference of power. Thank you. Um, yesterday, I did a an interview for a podcast with um, Ron and Russell Mail from Sparks and Alex Capranos from Franz Ferdinand, who are doing a an album or did an album are releasing an album together uh, as this new super group called FFS, which of course stands for Franz Ferdinand Sparks. And uh, so they came in to talk about the album, and I thought it would be great to play one of the singles from the album. Uh, This is called Johnny Delusional, and I'm very excited for this to come out on June 9th. 
So it's all of Franz Ferdinand and all of Sparks. I know Sparks is two guys. Two, but... two guys, yeah. Um, I've listened to it. I really like it. Uh, I, I heard, I don't always listen to the show, but I heard that you had a Sparks song on Jam of the Week before. Did we? Yeah, I think we did because I was. I went through a whole. I was doing when I, I interviewed Todd Rundgren. I went back and listened to the first uh, Sparks record, which was produced by Todd Rundgren back when they had never. They'd never like played live. They'd never done anything. They were like, I think they like you know their drummer. The, the drums were like somebody pounding on a box. You know, they had a warehouse, and I guess they did like a private concert just for Todd Rundgren to demonstrate their uh, musical acumen because they'd never played in a club before. I can't think of a, a more nerve-wracking thing besides doing a podcast with you. Having to perform in front of Todd. It's Ron very Green. similar. I'm going to give you a lot of notes at the end on your performance. Um, Alex Papadimus, Rundgren-esque, Rundgren, says Dave Schilling. Rundgrenite. I'm known for being, for being uh, Rundgrenite in my criticisms. Uh, no, I love Sparks. They're, you know, I, I have also interviewed them, and it was a great experience for me as well. I met them, met them many years ago. I mean, they're, you know, ageless, so it doesn't make a difference. But. They, they look, they've never looked better than they did yesterday. <laughs> I tell you that. Um. Yes. What? A, what? This is fun. I'm glad you came in. God, I love talking to you. I'm glad you could be here. I mean, how much of that though is the coke talking? Oh, this, oh man, this is just I coke am, talk. This is I'm, that thing where I'm we're just flying <laughs> high right now. I feel like I just got some really good news. I, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, exactly. It's only. A, it's not a full one. It's a, it's a. You know, one of the smaller bottles. Only eight point five ounces. So you got some pretty good. You news. know what? When you have one, you just want more. You Ten know? minutes later, you just want more. I, exactly. Coke. My smile is fading. <laughs> my sense of love for my fellow man. Uh, I'm going to go get some more Coke if you want to join me. Yeah, no, I think I'm going to. I don't want to leave this room. All right, well, I'll be back. <laughs> Goodbye. Dave Schilling, thank you very much for coming in. You're very welcome, man. I will come here anytime you want. I know you're right there, but I, you know, symbolically, thanks for coming in and, uh, keeping me making me feel a little safer in the presence of this uh, frightening iron throne let's hold hands and walk out of here we will hold hands and walk out of here thank you to joe fuentes thank you to david jacoby thank you uh, bill simmons thank you bill simmons and uh peace to wesley morris in the at the film festival whose name i do not speak aloud because i never pronounced it correctly i think both pronunciations are wrong that's what i've decided so he's at a film festival in the south of france you know the one I'm talking about, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drop it. Um, and we'll be back next week. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes, or. Go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.